Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Grok Radio. The following broadcast is made possible by the friends and partners of CYI Worldwide Ministries and Grok Radio. And the views expressed in this program and by our guests may not necessarily reflect those of CYI Worldwide Ministries or its staff. And now, enjoy the show. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. And you are listening to the Deeper Waters Podcast, the podcast where I seek to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics so you can be thoroughly equipped to defend your faith. And today again is no exception. I'm talking with Dr. Donald Williams today, and I found about him through a book I picked up of his years ago called Mere Humanity. And especially how to get because it mentions Chesterton, Lewis, and Tolkien on the cover. And hey, who can go wrong with a trio like that, you know? Not even me. (laughs) So who is uh, Dr. Williams? Where He says he's raised in a Christian home and devoted his life to Christ at an early age. Recognizing him by his high school years, he had a strong drive for the integration of faith and learning. They are called... the Ministry of Preaching, Teaching, and Writing. He's got a BA in English from Taylor University, an MDiv from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and a PhD in Medieval and Renaissance Literature from the University of Georgia. He's the author of nine books, Person and Work of the Holy Spirit, Disciples' Prayer, Mere Humanity, which we're talking about today, which is G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and J.R.R. Tolkien on the Human Condition, Credo, Meditations on the Nicene Creed, the Devil's Dictionary of a Christian Church, Stars Through the Clouds, the Collected Poetry of Donald T. Williams, Reflections from Plato's Cave, Essays in Evangelical Philosophy, Inklings of Reality, Essays Towards a Christian Philosophy of Letters, Second Edition Revised and Expanded, and Gaining a Faith, the Romanticism of C.S. Lewis, no doubt a response to Till We Have Faces. He has also contributed essays, poems, and reviews to such journals as National Review, Christianity Today, Touchstone, Modern Reformation, Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, Philosophia Christi, Theology Today, Christianity and Literature, Christian Scholars Review, Myth Lore, Seven, and Anglo-American Literary Review, Christian Educators Journal Preaching, and Christian Research Journal. He is an ordained minister in the Evangelical Free Church of America, with many years of pastoral experience and has spent several summers in Africa and India training local pastors with Church Planning International and currently serves as RA Forest Scholar and Professor of English at the Coed Falls College in the Heroes of Northeast Georgia. Wow, that's a, quite a quite a resume you've got there. It sounds impressive when you put it on paper. Mm-hmm. I, I've managed to uh, land quite a few publications in places where they're very easy to ignore. Mm. Well, in, uh, with all that, though, tell us a little bit about yourself. My audience might not know who you are. How did you get to where you're, you're at today? Yeah, well, I was, as, as you said, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, 
grew up in a church that was in many ways a very good uh, Bible-believing, mission-oriented church. But uh, when I got into my teenage years, I started having questions. And the problem wasn't so much the fact that the people in the church couldn't answer the questions as it was their attitude toward them, Mm. which was, you know, if you were spiritual and just had faith, you wouldn't ask questions like that. Well, as you can well imagine, that had the opposite of its intended effect and was seriously driving me away from the faith. You know, mm-hmm. if, if a snot-nosed kid can make, if, if these people are so, uh, if, if they're so insecure, if they're made that insecure by the questions of a snot-nosed kid, how can what they believe possibly have any solid grounding or be true? Mm. And so I didn't get the faith up, but I was seriously questioning and, and on the verge of becoming an agnostic. Fortunately, uh, about that time, it would have been 1968, the Tolkien craze hit my high school. Mm. And so I... Uh, started reading Lord of the Rings, and uh, it was such an incredible, uh, the irony is, you know, it's a work of fantasy, but it seemed to be more rooted in reality than most realistic fiction, Mm. because it's dealing with the realities of light and darkness, good and evil, and victory not through strength, but through weakness and sacrifice. And I started saying to myself, you know, if a Christian actually had any intelligence and wrote books, maybe it would come out something like this. But, of course, at that time, my experience completely denied the idea that any such thing could possibly be. And then somebody said, well, if you like Tolkien, you ought to check out his friend, C.S. Lewis. And so I very innocently went to the library and uh, checked out the first C.S. Lewis book, which fell into my hands, which happened to be an experiment in criticism. I think I'm probably the only person on the planet whose first Lewis book was experiment in criticism. Uh, Not the Narnia books, not mere Christianity, no, experiment in criticism. Well, it's a book about reading and about what makes good reading and uh, how good literature encourages good reading. And so I was finding it very interesting. And uh, it eventually led me to things like Mere Christianity, Miracles, Problem of Pain. And in those books, I discovered some very good answers to my questions, but even more important than the answers themselves, uh, the completely world-shattering idea that it was actually possible for a Christian to be intelligent and faithful to his faith at the same time. Mm -hmm. Not only possible, but that if you really understand the biblical worldview, Mm -hmm. it's the only thing that makes useful intelligence possible. If there is no truth, then intelligence has no value. And uh, if there is no God and everything just sort of evolved by chance, 
then the whole concept of truth becomes very problematic as secular uh, postmodern thinkers rightly realize. Mm -hmm. So uh, the great thing about Lewis and then discovering that Tolkien was in fact Christian and, and uh, getting into some of his works like the essay on fairy stories, which I deal with in Mere Humanity, um, then later running into Francis Schaeffer not long after that, uh, it really set my life on a course that it's been following ever since, uh, which is that unless Christian faith provides a, a, a foundation on which to build truth that really has better answers for all the questions of life, uh, if, it do, if it's not doing that, we ought to just stop pretending that it's true and abandon it. Mm -hmm. But uh, praise God, it turns out that it does do those things very solidly. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in the way that all fundamentalists expect, uh, but in ways that give you uh, very solid reasons for following Christ. Mm -hmm. and finding that he is the way, the truth, and the life. I was, finding life. It, I was finding it rather amusing when you were talking about Tolkien and saying, if a Christian wrote some fiction, it would probably be like this. Oh, what was it like when you found out Tolkien was a Christian? Oh, that was, that was, a, that was an astonishing moment. I was reading the essay on fairy stories mm -hmm. where he's talking about his idea of sub-creation, that is... The reason human beings are creative is because we're made in the image of the creator. And uh, he's trying to explain this, and he has this little poem in there that's part of the exposition. Although now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. Man, sub-creator the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Although every cranny of the universe we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods in their houses out of dark and light, and sow the seed of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused. That right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we are made. And I remember... Uh, when I got to that line, we made still by the line which we made. I slammed the book shut and went out for a walk just to try to start processing the way the whole universe had just changed shape. Uh, because at that point, the great mystery to me was, um, why is it that Christians have so little interest in the life of the mind in the imagination, in the world of art and serious music, why is it that Christians uh, have, are so threatened by intellectual questions? And what I realized from reading Tolkien is uh, that that mystery was far deeper and more puzzling than I had ever thought it was. Because not only was it possible for Christians to do those things, as Lewis had shown me by his example, but the Christian worldview actually is the only thing in the universe that provides a basis for anybody doing them. Mm 
-hmm. Either we make by the law in which we're made. Either we're creative because we're made in the image of the creator, or human creativity is an evolutionary aberration, which ultimately has no meaning. And uh, there really aren't any other alternatives besides those two, once mm -hmm. you think it through. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I still got that copy. Uh, I think it's in the office. It's not here. That was 1969, and uh, if I had it, I could show you the annotation that I wrote in the margin, i.e., uh, Tolkien's theory is not only inherently Christian, but depends on the truth of the Christian faith for its existence. Mm -hmm. As in fact, we eventually learn everything does. Mm -hmm. uh, so, at that point, you go back to the Lord of the Rings, and the hints, which are already there, start jumping out at you much more clearly. Um, the idea that, that it's not through might nor power, uh, but through weakness, that Iluvatar brings about the victory, um, the, the importance of sacrifice. Um, all these are things that resonate deeply with Tolkien's Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, although they're not as explicitly uh, evangelistic as the images that Lewis has in the Narnia books, they're just as profoundly biblical. And, and uh, later, even than that, when the Silmarillion finally came out, um, if, if there's anybody who hasn't read it yet, maybe the most important thing Tolkien ever wrote was the first chapter of the Silmarillion, mm -hmm. which is the creation story of Middle-earth. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, once you've read that, it is the key that opens up the Hobbit and the Ring trilogy and uh, elucidates their explicitly Christian foundations the way nothing else does. Well, let's get to the uh, book, Mere Humanity. Why did you write this book? Well, I was uh, reading uh, Blind Witch and the Wardrobe, and uh, as you know, in Mr. Tumnus' library, there is a book with the title, Is Man a Myth? Mm -hmm. And as soon as I read that book, I, as soon as I read that title, I said, that book needs to exist. Uh, that needs to exist in our world, not just in, mm -hmm. in Narnia. And uh, so that, that phrase really grabbed me, Is Man a Myth? Because... Uh, man is a myth, inescapably. That is, if you define a myth as a story that explains the world, um, if you think of myth the way Lewis thought of it, so that uh, myth is a story that explains the world, and one of those, the Christian story, is actually true, literally true in the real world. Well, there are a number of myths by which we understand humanity. Uh, there's the myth of uh, modern secularism and, and evolutionary theory where we evolved randomly by chance and are simply uh, an animal with opposable thumbs and an extra convolution or two in our brains, but mm -hmm. essentially no different from the other animals. There's the Christian story that we're created in the image of God, which makes us uh, we're kin to the animals in our physical bodies, which, like theirs, are taken from the dust of the earth. 
but because God breathed into us the breath of life, because he made us in his image in a way that he didn't make the other animals, uh, that gives us a special significance, gives our life meaning and purpose, which it doesn't have and really can't have on the other basis. Mm-hmm. And so uh, how you understand who man is, how you understand who you are, absolutely absolutely depends on which one of those big narratives you see yourself as participating in. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, there's, there's just no more important uh, issue. There's no issue about which people are becoming more confused than this. And uh, that was what got me interested in uh, in pursuing the idea. And then I realized, okay, in, in Chesterton, you've got the everlasting man. Chesterton's apologetic masterpiece. Lewis has the abolition of man. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories. You have these three men who've all written expositions of their understanding of human nature. Uh, Chesterton in The Everlasting Man says you can't understand man apart from Christ. Uh, Lewis in The Abolition of Man, you can't understand man apart from the Tao, which he participates in and the other animals don't. Tolkien, you can't understand man apart from seeing him as created in the image of the Creator. You have uh, a a uh, unified exposition of a rich biblical idea of man, situating man in that large biblical story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And uh, it seemed to me that these three guys were were developing in, developing it in ways that had potential for having traction against the secularist reductionism which is the alternative story uh, that you place people in. And then, in Lewis and Tolkien, both do some interesting things with their fiction. That is, they expound the biblical idea of man in their expository writings, and then they incarnate it in their fiction. Uh, In the Space Trilogy, you have now, uh, Cerrone, Pifeltrigi, Prasa, uh, you have the green lady uh, of Paralandra who is mm-hmm. human in shape but not descended from Adam and Eve. You have these creatures who are like us but not like us. They're more like us than the animals because they share a rational spiritual nature with us. So that brings out how we differ from the animals and yet they're not human, which brings out the uniqueness of, of humanity. So these creatures are foils that help to bring into sharp focus or relief the essential essence of human nature. Mm-hmm. Then in the Narnia books, you have the talking beasts who function in the same way. They're uh, rational, spiritual creatures like us, and unlike the dumb beasts, but yet they're not human. There's a special significance left over for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve in Narnia. Then in Middle-earth, in the Tolkien legendarium, you have, of course, elves, dwarves, orcs, etc., who play the same role. And so in uh, Mere Humanity, I start out by going through the expository works and saying, here's the ideas about man these guys developed. And then look at how they incarnate 
this concept in their fiction. Mm -hmm. So they're doing it for the reason in the expository works. They're doing it for the imagination in the fiction. And when you see the whole package together, it gives a very compelling picture of, of what the biblical story of man is. Mm -hmm. And I think it also gives you a, an interesting window into those works. Mm -hmm. uh, so that if you're interested in the Space Trilogy or if you like the Narnia books of the Lord of the Rings, uh, the exposition of those works from this standpoint that I do in the second half of the book I think is, as I said, some very unique and interesting windows into the significance of those works. It really helps us understand them. Okay. Well, one aspect I can think of that would be an interesting point to touch on is that sometimes it seems in here in our American culture, we have a problem that we're way too focused on ourselves. So if someone mm -hmm. would say, well, if we're reading a book about what humanity is, isn't that still focusing too much on ourselves? It could be, but I don't think it has to be because, uh, and and in the case of these three authors, I don't think it will be because um, one of the aspects of humanity that they cover is the fact that the human race is a family, it's a community. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, if you truly understand what it is to be fully human, you can't think of yourself as an individualist monad like right. Anne Rand does, for example. Mm -hmm. um, that just ends up looking very thin and anemic compared to the idea of, of the corporate side, the communal side of what it is to be human. To be human is to be part of a family with a history and an ancestry. And uh, so insofar as our self-absorption I think is fueled by a false concept of individualism I think that in this case mm -hmm. uh, looking at humanity would be an antidote rather than a support for that mistake and yeah, I think I've heard said before the six great duties of man are knowing and loving yourself knowing and loving your neighbor and knowing and loving God yes and uh, it's not only important to recognize all six of them, but to get them in the right order. Yeah. Why is uh, it... Go on. Go on. Oh, go ahead. Why is it that you think writers like Chesterton, Lewis, and Tolkien have stood the test of time so well? Hmm. They're good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, simple answer. Uh, as one who has tried to write myself, mm -hmm. uh... I uh, am painfully aware of the fact that I'm barely uh, worthy to sharpen those guys' pencils. Mm -hmm. uh, why are they so? Why are they good? Well, I mean, it's a difficult question. Uh, nobody can really understand human genius and where it comes from. But uh, they had some advantages in terms of the fact that they lived in an age that uh, had the potential, I think, for a richer development of the intellect and the imagination and the integration of those things in some ways, at least than ours does. Um, you know, we have information at our fingertips that they couldn't have imagined. Mm -hmm. 
But information isn't the same thing as understanding right. or knowledge. Right. And uh, uh, you know, I, I've noticed in my own students, the, the most intelligent aren't necessarily the ones who profit the most. They may get the best scores, uh, but the ones who have to work a little bit harder for it, yet have enough gifts to do so well, they usually go deeper and, and build higher than the others. Mm -hmm. Well, these guys, uh, these guys were absolutely brilliant, but they lived in an age where you had to work for knowledge, and they sunk it in very deeply. You know, I tried, I really tried to reproduce the kind of education that they had. Uh, Lewis could read fluently uh, classical Greek, Latin, Anglo-Saxon, uh, French, German, Tok Italian. Tolkien added to that Old Norse Sanskrit. I mean, his linguistic abilities, Finnish, uh, his linguistic abilities were, were incredible. And uh, so I, I really tried. I studied Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and I couldn't do it, um, partly because I started too late, partly because I just didn't have the capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, I still read Latin competently. I read uh, New Testament Greek pretty fluently. But when I tried to push Anglo-Saxon in one side of my head, Hebrew fell out the other side. <laughs> I just wasn't able to keep all of those languages functional at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so Lewis and Tolkien had a foundation in language, and you never really understand the English language until you've been forced to deal with something else. Mm -hmm. um, this shows up, of course, supremely in Tolkien, whose, whose creation of Middle Earth is a purely linguistic phenomenon. Tolkien, uh, what Tolkien wanted to create was what in his mind was the ultimate act of creation, which was a language. He wanted to create his own language. And he discovered that in order to do this uh, and have it really satisfy him as having the feel of a real language, he had to have a people to speak it. That people had to have a world to live in. And they had to have a history and they had to have other peoples with other languages that they related to in order for Elvish, which is where it all started, to really have the feel of a true language. And so Middle Earth came into existence as the necessary framework uh, to, hold, to uphold the existence of the Elvish language. And that's why... Uh, Middle Earth is the most consistently and deeply uh, created imaginary world that's ever been because its creation parallels uh, the actual creation of this world, which was done with language. Mm -hmm. God said, let there be light, and there was light. I mean, God used language to bring things into existence. And then he said, that's good. You know, God, God says, let there be light. Oh, there's light. 
never been any before. All of a sudden, it's flashing out there, and God says, that's good. I like this stuff. This is good stuff. I'm going to make some more of that. <laughs> so language is how God brings the world into existence. Language is how he gives it value because he said it was good. Language is how he orders it and structures it because he uses his mm -hmm. verbal fiat to divide night from day, etc. Language is the most creative thing about us and the thing that most shows that we are indeed made in the image of God. Uh, so, uh, now, just because you're a brilliant linguist doesn't mean you're going to be a great writer. Uh, and just because you're a brilliant scholar doesn't mean you're going to be a sound uh, exponent of the biblical worldview. But they had a set of tools that... Uh, they had a set of tools that is almost impossible for us to recreate now. Our educational system just doesn't allow for it. Mm, that's fascinating. That plus their uh, deep faith and the fact they were lucky enough to be geniuses and uh, wise enough to dedicate their talents to the Lord's service is as good an answer as you can ever come up with to that question, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, let's start looking at each of these. Let's first start off with G.K. Chesterton, who would have been the first of a lot. Right. Yeah, Chesterton died in the 30s. Uh, Lewis and Tolkien, uh, their lives overlapped his, but they didn't actually know him personally. However, they were both very much influenced by Chesterton. Mm -hmm. uh, Lewis says so explicitly, uh, Tolkien's doctrine of subcreation really is simply an elaborate working out of what Chester, Chesterton called his philosophy of story in uh, The Everlasting Man. Uh, Chesterton, unlike the other two, was not an academic. He was a journalist. Mm -hmm. uh, made his living by writing reviews for papers and magazines. and uh, He was uh, a uh, deeply devout uh, Roman Catholic believer and probably had uh, one of the sharpest wits that has ever existed in any uh, human being oh, ever. Yeah. Uh, he, he just loved to generate uh, paradoxes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and, and sometimes his... Uh, the paradox machine uh, would get going and sort of need a governor, but uh, he's sometimes too brilliant for his own good because you start wondering if it's not just cleverness rather than sound thinking that, that makes him so effective, but most of the time it's not. Uh, Chesterton really gets this ball rolling uh, in his book, The Everlasting Man. Uh, and, and, and what Chesterton does in that book is he, he decides, I'm going to take the idea of naturalistic, purposeless evolution more seriously than the evolutionist takes it. Mm -hmm. Let's see what happens if you do that. And what happens is that uh, man becomes an inexplicable, inexplicable conundrum. Um, 
if you really take seriously the idea that uh, all life evolved by small incremental steps uh, that took place as a result of random uh, chance mutations, then where does man come from? How do you explain the gap between humanity and every other species? Um, for example, uh, language. I mentioned that language is the supreme mm -hmm. instance of, of proof that we're created in the image of God. Um, think about what it means to have a true language. Uh, and maybe the easiest way to illustrate that is by, to contrast uh, our language with some of the communication uh, systems that other animals have. You know, there are some of the animals have some rather sophisticated methods of communication. Everybody is familiar, for example, with the dance of the honeybees. Yep. The worker come, finds a field of flowers. He comes back to the hive. He does this little dance. Mm -hmm. And from it, the other worker bees know the precise distance and uh, compass direction, compensating for the wind to go and find these flowers and bring the nectar back to the hive. You know, that's pretty impressive, but that's the only thing they can communicate with it, you know, mm -hmm. or, 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 or think about, think about some of the higher, uh, some of the higher primates, uh, chimpanzees, for example, you know, we've been doing experiments to see if chimpanzees can be taught human language, uh, for example, at the Yerkes Primate Center in, uh, at Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, and some of those uh, chimps have done some amazing things. Uh, linguists uh, argue about whether uh, they're using true language or just imitating their, uh, their trainers, but uh, even if they have used real language, it's only after man has been messing around with their heads, because in nature they don't. Uh, somebody uh, somebody studied one particular tribe of monkeys uh, that lived on the island of Madagascar at one point, discovered they had 60 different uh, words, or I, I say words very loosely, 60 different sounds they could make that had a meaning relevant to the mind of monkeys. Uh, things like food, danger, I'll pick your ticks off if you pick mine, other stuff like that. Well, a vocabulary of 60 words is pretty impressive for an animal. But it wasn't a language, and it wouldn't have been a language if they'd had 6,000, because no monkey ever made up a new sound to communicate a new idea that had never before entered into the mind of monkey. Mm -hmm. No monkey ever recombined the existing 60 sounds into a new pattern or a new structure to communicate a new idea that never before entered into the mind of monkey. In other words, what they had, they were locked into it instinctively, and they could do some impressive things with it, but they were limited to that thing that they had. What it lacked it was creativity. Creativity is exactly the thing that makes human language work. Uh, I probably just uttered a sentence in which 
I used a combination of words which you had never before encountered in precisely that order and combination. Uh, I may have created a new sentence that's never before been spoken. I did it effortlessly. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing you probably understood it almost effortlessly without even thinking about it. Absolutely. When you, com- when, when you compare this thing that we do routinely every day mm-hmm. with the most advanced forms of animal communication, you suddenly realize the, the gap that is there. Uh, the idea that we speak because we're created in the image of God is really the only adequate explanation Because without creativity, there's no language. The English language constantly is changing, evolving, growing, adding new words, uh, coming up with new ways to use old words, Mm. uh, losing words. It's it's a dynamic, fluid, constantly changing and growing thing, living thing, and it is so precisely because of the creative input of all of its speakers. Which we just do effortlessly, and no animal in the wild, if we haven't been messing around with its head, comes anywhere close to that. This is not a micro evolutionary step, which a few more mutations could have given us. It's a giant leap. It's, it's somebody trying to do a long jump across the Grand Canyon. <laughs> The idea that evolution could have produced us, uh, once you actually study the nature of language, is pretty much ludicrous. Hmm. And you can you see the same thing. Chester develop, Chesterton develops this on many different levels. Uh, art, you know, we 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 make analogies between what we do and what animals do. We use those analogies. That is people thinking out of the evolutionary paradigm, out of the evolutionary myth, look at those analogies and say, you see, we're just like they are. We're just a little bit more advanced. Oh, really? Well, um, monkeys can use tools. Chimpanzees will arrange boxes into a pile they can climb to reach a banana suspended from the ceiling. Uh, chimpanzees will break off a sharp stick to dig termites out of a termite nest to eat. What the chimpanzee will not do is arrange those boxes or those sticks into a symmetrical pattern and sit back just to contemplate the aesthetic beauty of what he has done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chesterton concludes, art is the signature of man. you know, the, the cave paintings didn't evolve from anything animals were doing. They are another uh, rocket launch across the Grand Canyon. Uh, and so uh, evolutionists look at us as one step beyond the bonobo, for example, uh, because they're, they're letting the evolutionary myth dictate how they read the evidence. When you look at us without that set of glasses, you suddenly think, wow, whatever evolution might have done in the process of creation, and and in this book, I don't even go into that. I just say uh, 
Christians have different views, everything from theistic evolution to young earth creationism. Uh, whatever evolution did, it can't be the whole story. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the conclusion that Chesterton comes to by looking at man trying to take evolution more seriously than the evolutionist. And so he concludes, you know, uh, if the engineer, if the aeronautical engineer makes a mistake in designing the airplane, the airplane will tell him by falling out of the sky. But if the uh, anthropologist makes a mistake in designing his arboreal ancestor, the arboreal ancestor will not tell him by falling out of the tree. Mm. Uh, we end up with man as something that, um, if you're using the evolutionary myth, there's absolutely no explanation for us at all. And so you're prepared, Chesterton prepares us to turn to another way of looking at it, where he says the only way to understand humanity is to realize that Christ, uh, the Son of God, is the template for true humanity. And so you understand us as fallen from that and redeemed toward that, and as unique indeed because we were in the image of the Creator. Yep. So, uh, yeah, Lewis and Tolkien both pick up on this and build on it, each in different ways. Yeah, my wife happens to be an artist, mainly in the area of anime, and mm. what I've told her before, and maybe you can tell me if Chesterton or Tolkien Lewis agrees that it's that if in good sound thinking, if what we're doing is thinking God's thoughts after him, that could be that when we do art, what we're doing is creating God's world after him. Yeah, uh, I think Tolkien would have possibly agreed with that. Now, he made a, a distinction between primary creation, which is what God does, mm -hmm. and secondary creation, which is what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, agrees and, and has the same idea. Lewis says, you know, you, you're not going to come up with a new primary color. Yeah. Uh, but we can take what God has given and uh, we, can, we can do things with it that aren't given in the material itself. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something that no other species can do. Mm-hmm. Tolkien has the really interesting way of, of uh, dealing with that in the Silmarillion, where uh, the, uh, the Valar, which are the angelic beings who are the overseers of, of Middle Earth, uh, the Valar know the future history of Middle Earth because they were present in the beginning when uh, there was the great music in the heavens, mm -hmm. uh, which, in fact, they contributed to. Uh, but they can't predict what the children of the Luvatar are going to do because uh, man is not given in... Man comes from the dust of the earth, but he's not given in the dust of the earth. There's something about us that transcends that. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, Art and language are both are both illustrations of that fact. So we're we're uh, I think what Lewis and Tolkien would say is that we're, God is letting us participate 
in the creation of the world. Uh, he is letting us have a part in the unfolding of his creation and a part in bringing it to places that if God had just created the space-time continuum and matter and the laws of physics and left it on its own, uh, helping to bring it to a place it could never have come to based on those materials alone. There's a great line there that uh, Chesterton has from one of his friends. We have the story of him talking to him and says, and how his friend told him, I saw a man rise up on an aeroplane the other day, and it was an incredible sight to see, but it isn't nearly as incredible as the sight of a man rising upon a horse. Exactly, yeah. And a lot of us would look at that and think, an airplane is an amazing technological feat. Man finally finds the air. How can that not be more impressive than riding a horse? Yeah, because uh, how do you persuade the horse to cooperate in this adventure? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the horse gets... Uh, a nice warm stall uh, to live in and hay out of it. But how is the horse going to figure that out beforehand? Uh, you know, is there, there, there are other species that have symbiotic relationships, but I can't think of other species that tame uh, species that don't by nature have such relationships. Mm-hmm. The relationship between man and horse is not given in the nature of the man or the nature of the horse. It's something that human beings have created. The uh, mm-hmm. same goes with our relationship to our pets. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of Lewis's crack that, uh, that man with dog closes a gap in the universe. Mm-hmm. And when we get back to Chesterton with what he was saying about art as well, what we can also say about interest about our art is that it really doesn't enhance our survivor abilities at all. It We can right. say it enhances our living, but you don't have to have art to survive. That's right. It doesn't have utilitarian value and that's what makes it uniquely human. We're the only species I can think of <coughs> where uh, a huge chunk of our activity and the chunk that ends up being the most important to us has no utilitarian value at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, bird song isn't song. We think the birds are singing. They're actually telling the other birds to stay the heck out of their tree. This is my tree. Go find your own, mm-hmm. uh, or something to that effect. Or you know that that and, and birds don't gather to listen to a specially talented mockingbird showing off how many other bird songs he can imitate. Uh, they're not interested in it in that way. Uh, Chesterton talks about how, what, what if man started making, what if robins started making nests the way men make houses? It's another one of those analogies. Oh, robins make nests, we make houses. See, we're no different. Well, well okay. Let's ask the robin to make houses the way we do. So every robin nest has exactly the same design. Mm-hmm. 
you don't find, you know, the Cape Cod robin's nest. You don't find the half-tutored, the timber half-tutored robin nest, the ranch robin's nest, the, the neo-colonial robin's nest. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's unvarying mm -hmm. instinctual repetition of the same pattern, whereas men make houses that differ in ways that uh, simply can't be reduced to there being more efficient places to escape the elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're the only non-utilitarian species on the planet. Where mm -hmm. did that come from? It's also been said that uh, the early church, before the time of Constantine, they did not copy the people around them with occultic behavior and beliefs and such, except for in one area, and that was in art. And that was what I've told my own wife. Is, the reason they copied in art is they were reclaiming God's creation and taking it back from the pagans. Yeah, that that may be generally true. I wonder because uh, you see some of the early second century apologists mm. copying uh, Greek philosophy mm -hmm. at certain points and doing apologetics. Um, not just copying it blindly, but certainly uh, mm -hmm. taking over certain elements of it. But um, yeah. Uh, Interesting, you know, if you're going to do art at all in an age um, where the Greek statue is the standard of perfection, mm. uh, and if you're not going to become totally symbolic or abstract, uh, yeah, what else are you going to do except copy what these guys have done? They're the ones who really show the way. You know, if we're talking about art, but we should also about now some people have this concept that's so cliche they but it's really incredibly anti Christian where we talk about art and we say where beauty is in the eye of a beholder. Hmm. Well that's that's what most modern people assume. Uh and and certainly beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but it's a problem if you say it's only there if it's just purely subjective. Mm. Um, but I don't think that even on an empirical basis that claim stands up. That is, um, you know, how many people are you going to find who are going to say that the Rocky Mountains are ugly? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you will find some wackos who are just trying to be uh, avant-garde who will say that that dog poop is beautiful or something like that but if you look at normal human beings who aren't uh, just trying to get attention I think you'll find uh, a lot more unity on the idea of, of uh, what is beautiful than a lot of people expect uh. and there's, there's, there's great variations in taste but, um, you know, where does beauty come from? Uh, and, and beauty takes us to the, the classical trilogy of, uh, of beauty, 
goodness and truth. Mm-hmm. Now, as a Christian, I uh, look back over history and I see modern people trying really, really hard to relate those things to each other and not succeeding very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I look at it this way, that um, truth is the reflection of God's mind. Goodness is the reflection of his character. And beauty is the reflection of his glory mm. as they are revealed in creation. Mm-hmm. Truth is the reflection of God's mind, uh, goodness of his character, and beauty of his glory as they're reflected to us in his creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, from a Christian standpoint, I think that makes sense. And uh, and shows us, you know, is Keats right when he says beauty is truth, truth beauty that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. But it's pretty easy to blow that up. You know, is the Holocaust beautiful? It's true that six million Jews were brutally murdered, but is it, you know, is abortion beautiful? It's true that it had, you know, you can't just identify them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to understand um, truth, you have to see, not only do you have the facts right, but are you seeing them from God's perspective? Mm-hmm. So uh, a mere fact isn't yet a truth. It's just a fact. Uh, a truth is that fact seen as God sees it. And um, if there is a God who created the world and called it good and gave it not only its existence and its form, but its value by calling it good, then I think it's really a betrayal of the Christian doctrine of creation to reduce beauty to a purely subjective response. And I was just considering when we were talking about this, about contrasting with the animals, and how you said we create art and beauty for purposes that are not just functional, that an animal could have something beautiful to it, but that's usually to attract a mate and such, that we will create beauty just for the sake of creating beauty, just for mm-hmm. something to look at. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And then when you talk about how this goes with time we spend most, I figure you're talking about our leisure time, there, that mm. when we're in that, we'll appreciate something just because it's got beauty to it. And we're talking about things being subjective or objective. I've asked people before who want to tell me beauty is in the eye of a beholder. I'll say, okay, which one do you think is more beautiful? A Mozart symphony or someone being able to belch the alphabet? And if they, <laughs> if they say, well, there are some people who could think the latter is more beautiful. And I, I say, all I can say at that point is I pity them. Yeah, uh, and I wonder if they really do. I think sometimes uh, people have another agenda in what they say other than just purely trying to tell the truth. That is, mm-hmm. uh, you want to be seen as avant-garde, you want to be seen as out there, you want to be seen as cutting edge, you want to be seen as mm-hmm. uh, 
transgressive, which is mm. one of the big buzzwords that contemporary artists use. You know, like somehow art is only worthwhile if it uh, challenges bourgeois middle class assumptions and values. You know, they want to be seen as cool by uh, the people they're trying to impress, and I think uh, I think sometimes they give answers for that reason more so than because it's what they really truly believe in their hearts. And when we are talking about Christ also as a template for what a man's supposed to be, he was an artist, but his artwork was mainly done with words. Namely, parables, where he created stories. Is that yeah. what Chesterton is getting at? Well, Jesus was the... I mean, if you just completely forget uh, any belief in his deity or any religious connections, just look at him purely as a literary figure. Jesus is the greatest writer of parables in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, there are only a handful in the entire history of literature of parables that are worth putting up next to his. And he was coming up with them day after day off the top of his head. Usually mm -hmm. they're the answer to a question. You know, somebody says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. There was this guy going mm -hmm. to Jericho. You know? mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, uh, if that was his chosen form, uh, by purely literary standards, he's the greatest writer of parables who ever lived. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's kind of interesting that that would be uh, his medium, because, of course, the parable is a story designed to help us understand things. And... Uh, So on, on a human level, Jesus is doing what he did on a cosmic level before the Incarnation. Uh, because what God creates is not only a world that has structure, but a world that contains a history, a significant story. Mm -hmm. The world is the setting for the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, and, and that story is what gives it its meaning. So... And we can, Stories give meaning. Uh, yeah. yeah, Jesus was good at that. And we can say his stories did shape the world. Today we have a parable of the Good Samaritan, for instance. Mm -hmm. You'd said the Good Samaritan, back in the time of Jesus, most people would have all been rolling their eyes saying, what the heck are you talking what? about? That's an oxymoron. Yeah. Yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah, the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son... Uh, the lost coin, mm. the uh, you know, just one after another of them have become uh, part of the language. Mm -hmm. Even people who couldn't retell the story know what a good Samaritan is. Mm -hmm. Well, right now I want to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters. This week my guest is Dr. Donald Williams. We're talking about his book, Mere Humanity. Now, if you're listening to what I'm going to be recording next week, it's going to be the 4th of July weekend, which is a very big event if you're here in America. And so I'm going to have my friend Bill Fortenberry come on, and he's going to be talking about the faith of the founding fathers. 
were our, were our origins here in America Christian or not? It's going to be a very interesting show, and I hope you'll come back for it. But for now, we've still got Dr. Donald Williams here. We're talking about his book, Mere Humanity. We've spent some time talking about Chesterton. So let's go on to Lewis next here. And one of the main works you have in there is where Chesterton had the everlasting man, Lewis has the abolition of man. Yeah. Uh by the time you get to Lewis in the 1940s and 50s, uh, the trends that Chesterton uh, had already spotted back in the 30s have progressed to the point where the, the traditional concept of man as being uniquely uh, different from the other animals because of his creation in the image of God, mm -hmm. it's already beginning to disappear. Mm -hmm. Lewis is very much aware of that. And so uh, the abolition of man, Lewis begins with, he, he kind of uh, edges into the uh, topic a little bit slyly. He, he starts by talking about language that concerns him in a, high school English text, mm -hmm. which he calls the Green Book. And uh, this, this text is, is talking about poetry and saying that uh, when the man called the waterfall beautiful, uh, you might think he was making a statement about the waterfall, but he wasn't. He was really making a statement about himself. He was saying, I have feelings that I associate with beauty when I look at the waterfall. Mm -hmm. and, and Lewis jumps all over that because he realizes that it's a foot in the door that has the potential to destroy everything, to destroy mm -hmm. uh, Western civilization. Because uh, the man isn't talking about himself. He's not saying, I feel beautiful. He's saying the waterfall is beautiful. You may agree or disagree with him, but listen to what he's saying. Uh, and so the, the problem Lewis deals with is what happens to values if you switch to the secular paradigm, the secular myth, the evolutionary myth, that story that explains the world. Uh, if you shift to that story, values of any kind, whether it be beauty, whether it be ethics, become subjective because there is no one in a position to make a statement that is valid for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and now, in our day, uh, the language has shifted postmodernists, uh, who, who I think Tom Oden is absolutely right in calling them hypermodernists rather mm -hmm. than postmodernists. They're saying the same thing, but they've they've got an interesting way of saying it. That they say there's no God's eye view of the world. So if I say the waterfall is beautiful, not just I feel it's beautiful, but it is. Mm -hmm. That implies that if you don't think it's beautiful, you're missing something. It implies that beauty is a characteristic not of me, but of the waterfall. Well, if, it, if it's just me and you, if, 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 I, if, if you say the Mozart symphony is beautiful and I say 
belching the alphabet is beautiful. Who's going to decide between us? Mm-hmm. All right? In the secular paradigm now, who's going to decide between us? Well, the majority of other people. But that's just saying that might makes right. Yeah. Uh, there's nobody to decide between us except another finite person who's just as fallible and subjective as we are. Mm-hmm. So in the absence of a transcendent ground for values, the logic is inescapable that they do become completely subjective. Mm-hmm. And it's not just aesthetics. Ethics, the same thing happens. You know, if, if, if uh, you say that abortion is evil and I say it's good, well, those are just our opinions, you know, because mm. the only way somebody could say one of us is right and the other one is wrong is if that person uh, could see more than we can see, could see everything, isn't limited to our perspectives, but has a perspective that encompasses the whole. And in the absence of God, there's nobody with that perspective. Mm-hmm. So the postmodernists will say, there's no God's eye view of the world. And the Christian replies, yes, there is. God has one. And he's communicated at least parts of it to us. So uh, we have at least some kind of access to it. Uh, It becomes then theoretically possible to talk about real values so that beauty is not just a feeling in my heart, but an actual characteristic of a waterfall. Mm-hmm. So that goodness is not just the way I feel about uh, acts of mercy, but an actual characteristic of those acts. So that evil isn't just an expression of my feelings that I don't like murder, but it's an actual characteristic of murder, that it, it deserves our disapproval. So Lewis is basically saying, if you give up, objective values, you also give up your humanity because uh, the thing that Lewis focuses on that makes man unique and different from the other animals is the fact that we participate in the Tao. Uh, The Tao, which is Lewis's word uh, stolen from Chinese philosophy, for that overarching universal set of absolute values that is just as much objectively a part of the world as its uh, physical characteristics Mm -hmm. are. So Mm -hmm. if I Mm -hmm. truly say that the waterfall is beautiful, uh, that's the difference from saying that water is H2O. They're both equally objectively true. What I'm saying is the waterfall deserves appreciation. Whether you're capable of giving it or not, whether you're inclined to give Mm -hmm. it or not, we're not talking about you. We're talking about the waterfall. It deserves uh, contemplation just for its uh, just for its inherent correspondence with the value of beauty that is bigger than me or the waterfall. Uh, now this is a this is not to say that people don't make subjective judgments. This is not yeah. to say that people aren't subjective. Of course, 
we are all very much influenced by any number of factors that cause us sometimes to have opinions that don't correspond with objective reality, whether, whether it be if I think water is H3O, or whether it be I think uh, belching the uh, alphabet is more beautiful than the Mozart symphony. Um, it, the, <clears throat> it's not a statement about uh, to, to say that objective value exists is not to say that any of us perfectly perceives it. It's just to say it's there as a goal for us to try to to bring our minds and our imaginations and our hearts into a place where they correspond with what's actually there. So if, uh, if the Mozart Symphony has features such as its uh, symmetry, such as its structure, such as its um, uh, deft use of uh, the assumptions of Western com common practice music theory, uh, such as the contours of its melodies. Mozart was one of the greatest melodists who's ever lived. Uh, then it has those features, whether you like them or not. And if those things are excellent, then they deserve our respect. And if you don't appreciate them, you're missing out. On the other hand, uh, Belgian the alphabet, while it may represent a uh, certain level of skill, which might have taken some effort to acquire, um, you know, it's not something Although it might be interesting the first time you hear it, it's not really something that's going to wear well. It's not something you're going to want to come back to. And that's not just a statement about us. It's a statement about the uh, belching yeah. and the relative value of that with the other thing. So uh, Lewis gives a defense of objective value on the way to giving a defense of humanity of man as being something that can't be explained by the secular paradigm in which objective value makes no sense. Uh, therefore, uh, a defense of hanging on to the concept of, of humanity is something that participates in the Tao, something that uh, cannot be reduced simply to chemistry and physics. Mm. That's one of, one of the key concepts in the whole book is the concept of reductionism. And uh, the biblical view of man, as developed by all three of these men, is profoundly, profoundly anti-reductionistic. Reductionism is a way of looking at the world which oversimplifies everything by picking one aspect of reality and reducing everything to that one thing. For example, for a Marxist, everything is economics. For a Freudian, everything is sex. You know, for a feminist or a certain kind of feminist, everything is about gender in literature. Uh, for uh, a certain kind of naturalistic scientist, everything is ultimately just chemistry or math or physics. Uh, but the biblical idea of man is that when you've understood 
the chemistry and the physics and the hormones and everything else and know everything there is to know about them, there's still something left that you haven't grasped. And that, of course, is man's spiritual nature, which is shown is shown for Chesterton by the fact that our signature is art, shown for Lewis by our participation in the Tao. The fact that uh, we really cannot live as if there are no objective values. Yeah. Uh, there's no such thing as relativism. I mean, I've never met a true relativist. Right. I've debated with an awful lot of people who think they're relativists, but every one of them has something that they take as absolute, mm -hmm. and they just use relativism as an excuse not to deal with other values that they prefer to dismiss. Mm -hmm. um, who was it uh, who said that a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged? Uh, you know, uh, you'll remember that uh, for about six months after 9-11, relativism pretty much disappeared from American life, and it started sneaking back in again. Uh, but, you know, blowing up buildings full of innocent women and children people just saw that's just wrong it's not just that we don't happen to like it no it's more than that and nobody can live without having something that's more than that well if that's an inescapable feature of human nature maybe that tells us something about the way the world is maybe that tells us that there is more than that reductionism is not by its very nature capable of being an adequate explanation of who we are as human beings. Mm -hmm. Now, Lewis referred to his opening chapter as men without chest. And he's not really talking about mm -hmm. people like myself who don't work out and have that great beard and such. What does he really think is going to happen that leads us to developing <coughs> a society of men without chest? Well, yeah, Lewis wasn't talking about people who don't pump iron, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, he's using language symbolically. The head would stand for the reason, and the stomach or the guts for the uh, emotions or the passions. And uh, for Lewis, the chest is this region that mediate, I suppose we might call it the heart. I think he used chest rather than heart because he didn't want to get sidetracked into people reading romantic uh, associations. But a lot of us uh, would call it the heart. Mm -hmm. The chest is that thing that mediates between the reason and the emotions and contains uh, what Lewis calls sentiments, which is uh, trained emotional responses. That is, emotional responses that aren't just happening uh, with the emotions acting all by themselves without guidance, mm -hmm. but uh, emotional responses that have been guided and trained by the reason uh, to flow in certain productive and wholesome directions so that um, when you're confronted with the Mozart versus the uh, belching and you don't you don't pick the belching because mm -hmm. you just happen to be in a weird mood at that moment 
that uh, makes you think it's interesting, but you've trained yourself to look for that which is truly excellent, and so uh, you're uh, you're not dependent on the immediate responses of your animal nature. Uh, you you don't. Uh, you don't pursue every woman who speaks to your hormones. You channel your sexual energy into a faithful marriage. And you can't do that simply by rationally telling yourself that you ought to. You have to do it, if you're going to do it successfully, you do it by creating uh, tracks for your emotions to run in that the reason has participated in reason and discipline and uh, obedience to authority have participated in helping to create. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to naturally direct all my sexual energy toward my spouse unless I train myself to do so. And I'm not going to train myself to do so if I don't believe that it matters. So, um, when you have, when you understand man in the secular myth, or by virtue of the evolutionary myth, you're thinking of man simply as an animal or as a machine. Um, the transcendent reasons for creating those mediating functions simply aren't as compelling, you know. Um, we tell people that, uh, you know, we, we valorize science, which is telling them they can use their mind if they use it the right way. We valorize emotion. Our popular myths have advice like, Luke, trust your feelings. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is this thing that's missing? is the heart that has been trained to choose what is better uh, without the aid of that mediating uh, thing that Lewis calls the chest the mind will be helpless before mm -hmm. the passions so yeah that's the idea behind that now Lewis also saw that there were some more principles that did transcend our culture, that we call natural law, right? Mm -hmm. One of the most useful parts of the abolition of man is the appendix, mm -hmm. in which he charts across many different peoples, at many, in many different cultures at many different times, their uh, basic moral principles and finds an amazing amount of agreement. Mm -hmm. um, giving empirical evidence to support the idea that uh, that my personal morality is a variation on a theme which is not just purely personal and subjective, but there is an actual moral order that's objectively out there mm -hmm. uh, that uh, impinges on our consciousness and which which men are in rebellion against, but which they also feel the need to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if we were creating this kind of morality, we would all create something that's simple and easy for us to follow. 
And once again, Christ is a template here. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we would, in fact, most of us would create two sets of rules. One set for us to follow and one set for everybody else to follow and relate yep. to us. Mm -hmm. Because if we, uh, if we let everybody else get away with the stuff we want to get away with, we'd be in uh, deep trouble very quickly. Mm -hmm. We're we coming about the hour and 20-minute mark of our show here, so I want to remind everyone that what we do here at Deeper Waters and on the podcast, it's supported by listeners like you who faithfully like to listen to the show and hear what we have to say and who also read the blog and appreciate it, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do so. And I'd like to just encourage you to go to deeperwaters.wordpress.com, which is the blog where we come from, and make a donation to us. And in fact, consider becoming a monthly donor. And when you make that donation, it goes to the ministry of Michael Lacona at risenjesus.com. You just say, hey, I want this donation to go to Nick Peters. I want it to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure that every single penny goes to us. And I'd like to remind you also that we have an Amazon store up on our blog site as well. And if you buy a book through that, and I'll make sure Mere Humanity is on there, some of the proceeds of every purchase will go to us. And, of course, I'd like to remind you, we've got an ebook that's come out recently, Defining Inerrancy, which is a defense of Michael Kona, and a response to Geyser and some of the charges made Concerning announcing, my ministry partner and I, J.P. Holding, and I have written that together. Four bucks on Kindle, and again, some of every purchase does go to support Deeper Waters. Uh, Dr. Williams, do you have a cause out there that you think people should donate to as well? Oh, um, I can think of uh, a couple of things that are, are very worthy of our support. Uh, one is one would be Summit Ministries, which is a uh, Christian worldview camp for high school kids. Uh, they go for two weeks, two week sessions throughout the summer to Manitou Springs, Colorado. They also have a campus in, at Bryan College in the southeast, and uh, I get to teach for them a little bit, and I'm very very impressed with the quality of of uh, their program. Um, I. Uh, was recently elected president of the International Society of Christian Apologetics, mm -hmm. uh, which is a uh, fairly young organization. It's only about 10 years old, and uh, you know we uh, we publish a journal, uh, an online journal, uh, Journal of the International Society of Christian Apologetics, and we hold uh, conferences every year, and. Uh, you know, we could we could use a little extra money at some point. Uh, so if you just Google uh, International Society of Christian Apologetics, you'll be able to find the website uh, and be able to make a donation there if you're so inclined. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on to the final figure in the trilogy for the final part of the show. And as someone who grew up in the gaming generation and is still very much a part of it, Every single one of us in this generation owes a debt to this. I see you smiling there. You know what I'm talking about, I think. Because if anyone here has ever played an RPG before, we are in debt to Tolkien, aren't we? Yes, who, who uh, 
had no intention of doing any such thing. He just wanted to write a good book. But uh, Tolkien made the world safe for adult fantasy mm -hmm. in a way that it had not been for many years before The Lord of the Rings came out. And uh, it inspired lots of other kinds of creativity, too. Not only a lot of... Uh, uh, and not only the whole genre of adult fantasy, which would not have existed without The Lord of the Rings, but people uh, translating that into new media, such as the uh, online game world. Mm -hmm. Not something I've ever gotten very much involved in, but a lot of my students do. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're very much aware of that connection. So what is this? connection then. Why did Tolkien see fantasy as so important? Well, Tolkien uh, starts with the idea of subcreation. As I was uh, explaining earlier, we make still by the law in which we're made. Man is creative because he's created in the image of the creator. And uh, Tolkien not only explains that idea in the essay on fairy stories, but he took it very, very seriously. And the outcome was the world of the Lord of the Rings. Um, the Hobbit and the Ring trilogy are the most well-known uh, fictional works that came out of that world. But it's a complete world with its own history, its own geography, its own languages and peoples that uh, involves, I mean, they published, I think, 10 volumes of fragments and un unfinished tales and notes that Tolkien uh, never finished for publication in his lifetime. Now, uh, the, the thing about Middle-earth is that it's created um, soundly. Okay, it's it's not going to fall apart on you. Um, I, I think we can best understand that by maybe comparing it to to uh, other works of uh, science fiction and fantasy. Um, you have on uh, Tatooine, which is a desert planet. I mean, the whole planet is desert, and yet you've got these huge uh, apparently plant-eating mammals running, walking around. I don't think they're quite capable of running. It's like, how do they exist in this world? What do they eat? How do you grow so big eating food of this kind? I mean, it's just, it's, it's not there. Mm -hmm. I love Star Trek, but uh, how many Star Trek episodes are there where people, where you go to a planet that's lifeless? Mm-hmm. And yet it has a breathable atmosphere. What trees are producing? I mean, where is the oxygen coming from with no forests? Mm -hmm. Who's, what's absorbing the, the carbon dioxide? With, you know, it's just, no, you can't have a breathable atmosphere on a lifeless planet. Ecologically, mm -hmm. scientifically, reality doesn't agree with that. Or um, the episodes... So there's this, this, this thing which doesn't ring true even in terms of the premises of that world. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, if you're going to 
if you're going to do Star Trek, you have to accept the premise that warp speed is possible. You have to accept the premise that uh, replicator and transporter technology are, are actually possible. And when you, when you create a world, you're allowed to make the rules different from the real world, but once you make them, you've got to follow them. And in the Star Trek universe, uh, the only differences between our understanding of science and theirs is supposed to be those two assumptions. Mm -hmm. So, but how can you have a lifeless planet with a breathable atmosphere? You know, mm -hmm. it smacks you in the face and says, wait a minute, I, I'm trying to believe in your world so I can enter into it and enjoy your story and you're throwing this stumbling block in my path. Mm -hmm. Or you have the episodes where a, species, a new species involves right in front of your eyes. You know, how many random mutations would have to happen in five minutes for that to take place? Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's like your whole show assumes evolution is true, and yet you don't take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Or the claim that uh, poverty was eliminated on Earth in the 22nd century. No, it wasn't. Because in order to do that, you would have had to change human nature. And you clearly haven't done that because you still have villains, mm -hmm. which you need in order to have plots. So don't tell me that you eliminated poverty on a whole planet simply by having a little more technology. It's not believable. Right. Um, or, or, or one of the problems mm -hmm. that Tolkien had with uh, Lewis and Narnia books is... If it's always winter and never Christmas, where are the beavers getting fresh vegetables? Uh, yeah, which I love the Narnia books, and and it's not fair to compare anything to Tolkien on this level. I'm just using that as an illustration that in Middle Earth there's nothing like that. There is nothing in the geography, the ecology, the weather, the timelines, the history, the linguistics of Middle-earth that doesn't ring true in terms of the premises of the world itself. Mm -hmm. uh, the closest thing I can think of uh, to creating a world with that level of a sense of reality uh, would be the first novel of the Dune series, Frank Herbert's Dune, you know, his creation of, of uh, that planet. Uh, it's like, you know, he's, he's, okay, if you got a desert planet, what would the ecology of it be like? You know, you just follow through on all this stuff and get it right. So uh, people who uh, read uh, Tolkien's uh, trilogy and who like that kind of thing, find that it has a sense of reality which no other work of fiction can really compete with. Uh, people can't help but think of Middle Earth as a real place that they wish they could visit. Mm -hmm. And so it's the, it's the world creation aspect, uh, the sub-creation aspect, Tolkien did that so well that uh, you know every writer who creates a fictional world is doing something that parallels what God did when he created the real world. Uh, 
you create a world, you write the laws of its science and its physics and, and everything, uh, you people it with significant characters whose actions and choices will give it a history which gives it significance. Uh, the difference is when God did it, it really happened. It's called history. When we do it, it's only in the imagination. But uh, Tolkien takes that, that parallel and roots it, grounds it so solidly in reality that, that hardly any other work of fiction has ever been able to compete with him on that level. Mm -hmm. Consequently, anything else there is of, of value and worth in that trilogy, and there's a lot, uh, hits you harder than it would in uh, a different writer mm -hmm. who's trying to do the same thing. Well, uh, I think the impulse to create a world is one of the things that uh, your generation maybe picked up from Tolkien. Mm -hmm. And if now you have uh, computers with the capacity of creating those illusions, not just in words, but in virtual reality, uh, you know, the, the, the temptation to do that would be irresistible. And if you're good at it, mm -hmm. uh, you're certainly going to try. Now, it's interesting that Tolkien catches on so much as a fantasy writer, because we'd have some Christians I would think, why should we care about fantasy? God is interested in reality. What has fantasy to do with reality? Yeah, well, uh, you know, every fictional world is different from the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, even the most realistic fiction. You know, if, if you set your character in modern-day New York mm -hmm. in an apartment building that actually exists, on a street that actually exists, and have him encounter stuff that actually exists in New York. And nothing in your book departs from what we know about the actual reality of New York City. Uh, nevertheless, it's not really New York, because mm -hmm. that guy doesn't actually live there. Mm -hmm. The characters you created to put in that, they've already altered your world from actual reality. You can't do fiction without changing reality. So, who gets to set the rules about how much we can change it and it still be okay? Right. Uh, now, Tolkien's answer would be, ultimately, God sets those rules, and he does it by simply creating the world himself. In other words, if you're going to create a world... You need to make it consistent with itself. Uh, you need not to take shortcuts. You need to uh, fully incarnate it. And so uh, if you don't, if you have things that, that don't belong in it uh, that are there anyway just because you thought they were cool and stuck them in, uh, to that extent, it's not going to be good fiction. So in fantasy, we make a world that is significantly different from the everyday world that we will find if we step outside our doors. But we do it for the purpose of highlighting things that are 
actually part of our world. You know, the most basic parts of Middle Earth are water, wood, stone, bread, uh, beer, uh, pipeweed. You know, you take those things away and, and uh, you have nothing. Mm-hmm. Elves are... Uh, elves are like men but different from men uh, and the way they're different from us is that they're immortal in the life of this world they have a more direct connection to the spiritual world uh, a more direct perception of an ability to create beauty in other words they're taking aspects of human nature and exaggerating them uh, to make a point so that uh, when you think about uh, the way the world flows past the elf so quickly because he's been in it so long uh, and then you realize oh my goodness my life is doing that as I get older it took me as long to get from 0 to 20 it took me longer to get from 0 to 20 than it's taken me to get from 20 to 63. Uh, it's, it's just strange the way that works. So even the parts of Middle Earth that aren't literally like our everyday world of experience uh, are, are highlightings of things that are in order to bring into our attention, bring, bring to our attention, bring into focus for us things that are really there that we might not have seen otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and many readers of Tolkien would report that the effect of it is not, the effect of that enchanted world is not to disenchant, but to re-enchant the actual world we live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, water, wood, and hill. Are, are things that the real things become more real to us because we've seen them in that other setting. Mm-hmm. So there, there are uh, there are changes you can make to the real world that can be done for a purpose, and uh, fantasy gives you another set of strategies for doing that. Now, some also in the Christian camp might say. Well, we should avoid a lot of these fantasies, though, because they have magic, and we know the Bible condemns magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and uh, I, I think maybe there are uh, stories in which that uh, criticism has validity. Uh, it's interesting that in uh, in the Middle Earth saga. Uh, every time the word magic comes up, the elves are like, oh, you want to see some magic? I'm not even sure what you mean by that. Uh, it's like uh, nobody, nobody, none of the good guys anyway, is uh, using demonic power to manipulate the world. Uh, nobody has an attendant spirit. Now, now, the Nazgul and Sauron are a different category. I mean, 
magic as the Bible understands it in Christian fantasy only appears in the hands of people who are evil. In, mm -hmm. in Narnia, you have witches. I mean, I know people who condemn Narnia because it has witches, but the witches are all bad guys. Yeah. I mean, it's not hard to see on what side they are. Mm -hmm. then, you get, then you get to Harry Potter, uh, where you have uh, good characters called witches. And, and I think there things get muddied because I don't think uh, Rowling was as careful with her terminology as Lewis and Tolkien were. Uh, having Hermione be called a witch, even though she's a very good person, just doesn't fit biblical terminology at all. But the magic that these guys do is not magic as understood uh, in the Bible. They're not using demonic powers. They're just simply accessing laws of nature, extra laws of nature that muggles don't have access to. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think you can understand why people have a problem with Harry Potter. And in fact, it does, I think, create some, some confusion and muddiness because of its terminology, but it's not really, um, it's not really a, uh, tract for Wicca the way some people have accused it of being. If anyone's interested in that, I can say that last year we did interview John Granger on this topic. Okay. He wrote Looking for God in Harry Potter. And he also had Holly Ordway come on and talk about yeah, the projects of literature. Mm. Now, one of the things also yeah. about fantasy that I find is that fantasy, it, it can be very inspiring. That when you go out there and you actually put yourselves in the shoes of a hero of a story, and it's meant to encourage you, probably, I think, to be more bold in the world that you live in. Yes. Uh, Lewis deals with that in uh, a number of his uh, works of literary criticism, and I have an appendix at the end of Your Humanity where I go into those kind of things. We need heroes. Uh, if you're going to be called upon to do great things, then you need to be able to imagine them. You know, they're not doable unless first they're imaginable. If you can't picture someone making a sacrifice that's really costly, how are you going to do it when it's your turn to be called upon? Yeah. So when, uh, when Pippin casts aside the brooch, to just on the chance that he'll leave a clue for Aragorn, and Aragorn gives it back to him and pitches, you know, it says it's a, it was a wrench to let it go, and Aragorn says you did right. He who cannot cast away a treasure at need is in fetters. You need to live through that in your imagination. So that at some point in your life, and you have no idea when it will be, but at some point when life calls upon you to do something like that, you don't hesitate. You've already been there. Mm -hmm. You've already taken on the identity of the person who can do that kind of thing. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So great fiction, and particularly great Christian fiction like uh, Lewis and Tolkien wrote, uh, not only shows us biblical truth, but gives us the opportunity to practice living it, you know, uh, practice living it in ways that are a little bit more directed and um, intentional than life sometimes. Life comes at you, it seems pretty random. Yeah. But if you go through the Narnia books and you go through the Lord of the Rings and you pay attention to the characters and what they do and why they do it, uh, you're really preparing yourself for life in a very significant way. And, and that, by the way, is why the Jackson movies of the Lord of the Rings are so horribly inadequate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not because he simplifies plot elements. It's not because he conflates. I mean, it's not because he gets rid of Bombadil or because he conflates Glorfindel and Arwen. It's because he doesn't understand the importance of character to Tolkien's worldview. So, Faramir, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the Faramir of the book says, I wouldn't pick that thing up if I found it lying on the path. How do you get from there to tell my father I send him a powerful weapon? You know, Tolkien knows that we need pictures of integrity to feed our minds and hearts on. Mm-hmm. Uh Jackson isn't thinking about that at all. He's only thinking about, well, this guy seems too good to be true. I'm going to complicate him a little bit. But Tolkien understood we need characters that are in some ways a little bit too good to be true because, in fact, sometimes life asks that of us. Mm-hmm. Now, for those of us who are listening to a show like this, uh, you're probably already heavily interested in the apologetics work. And when you're talking about facing challenges in the real world, now I'm thinking about how Peter Crayford said that uh, apologetics is the closest you come to saving the world. And so, in essence, this is, anyone who's listening to this should have interest already in doing something heroic. I, I think Kraft is right, and I think that's why Lewis's fiction and his apologetics really are uh, twin prongs of the same fork. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you read Lewis's apologetics, you discover these wonderful analogies mm-hmm. that are the products of his imagination. When you read Lewis's fiction, you find these little set pieces of rational apologetics, like Pummelglum's refutation of the reductionism of the Green Witch. Uh, they're all of a piece. And so uh, even if it doesn't make philosophical arguments, I think good Christian fiction that reflects reality the way The Lord of the Rings does is a form of apologetics. And uh, when you make your arguments, they're going to have a lot more resonance if people have been exposed to uh, 
works of the imagination that, in Lewis's language, uh, get past the watchful dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis's own conversion, he says his imagination was baptized by MacDonald before his mind was convinced by Mm -hmm. Chesterton and by Tolkien uh, on Addison's Walk. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think we need a much more holistic approach to apologetics. Uh, Absolutely, we need rational arguments, uh, but they need to come at people in a context where they make imaginative sense. You know, most people aren't going to convert simply because you give them a brilliantly constructed syllogism. Uh, Because they'll find a way to dismiss it, even if they have to commit fallacies to do so, unless their heart is already also being prepared to see the truth it points to as a real solution to the problems of their life. Mm -hmm. So uh, rational argument, fiction, and living all need to be part of our apologetic. Part of the faith quote also serves to remind us that in this field, we are in fact engaged in a battle. And even Paul uses the imagery of battle I've told people before, I've heard it from somewhere else, that we were really dressing appropriately for church. We come in wearing combat gear because we realize we're getting secret orders from above us to how we're going to infiltrate our mission of of takeover of a war that's hostile yeah. to us. But most mm-hmm. of us don't even see us as a battle. We just see, well, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to be a good person and I'm serving Christ. No, you're taking on the enemy directly. Yes, and uh, if you do so effectively, he will notice and counterattack. Satan is foolish, but he's not stupid. Right. Yeah, and and I wish we could get uh, some of our warriors uh, Mm -hmm. to act like they're on the same side a little bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, Michael Kona and Norm Geisler. I. I, I don't know Mike personally. I appreciate his work. Norm is a friend of mine, and uh, I uh, I wish the two of them would be able to mm-hmm. conduct that conversation with a little bit different tone. The, t- the tone on both sides at, at times concerns me. Uh, but That's possibly a topic for another day. Could it be then that fantasy could in fact also serve, in fact I'm thinking about this to remind us that sometimes in our world things are going too smoothly for us. Fantasy can serve to remind us that there's real evil out there and to counter this real evil you need real good. Yeah, we live very protected lives and we have up to now in Mm -hmm. the United States. Um, you discover very quickly if you do any work overseas like I've done that that our experience is not the norm and it may not be the norm for us much longer Mm -hmm. Um, you know the the tolerance for the biblical worldview is rapidly evaporating and 
you look at the uh, you look at the Hobby Lobby case. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at a number of other examples where uh, protection for religious freedom is now an open discussion, which 20 years ago there would have been no discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, it's changing very rapidly, so we may we may be emerging from our cocoon into something more like the world that our brothers in Christ experience overseas. Uh, but fantasy, I, I think you're right. Uh, it's a good point. Fantasy serves to remind us of reality. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the realities that it certainly doesn't let you forget. And something I like to tell people that I get from the gaming experience today is that usually you're fine in most fantasy games today. The ones that win the battle most aren't exactly superheroes necessarily just people who work hard gain a lot of experience and then go out and fight the battlers and usually also before you were saying just now yes fight as a team against the enemy each one using their own unique abilities to contribute for the good of mankind being willing to sacrifice anything and say this is exactly what we're supposed to be doing in the church Yeah, boy, you know, if the church were capable of learning from uh, anyone, it would be a big help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just seems like most people in the church... So your, your program for reform is to make all of our uh, church elders and deacons play uh, RPGs. <laughs> you know, if, if that's what it would take, I'd do it. <laughs> I, I, my my problem with reform ultimately is hoping the church will eventually wake up and realize we're in a battle and unlike a game, if I'm playing a game, I can hit the reset button if things go badly here. There's no reset button in this one. We play now and yep. You don't you don't get extra lives. So no. you better spend the one you've got wisely. Mm-hmm. No. This this does. Just get us into, once again, the whole project thing, because we are, if we're the apologists, we're the ones going up there and encountering the enemy head on, and not everyone is going to be going out there and doing that. Not everyone is called for this, but everyone is called to support those of us who yeah. are, and I, I think of the analogy of uh, David when he went on a raid one time, and the men who stayed and guarded the camp are just as much part of a battle as those who went out and fought. And so those who stay behind and pray and support financially or anything else, they're just as much a part of a battle as those who go out and participate on the front lines, man. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Although uh, the other side of that coin is that Second uh, Timothy 3.15 does say not just to a few people, but to everyone, that we should always be ready to give an apologia, a defense, to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is within us. So not all of us are called to do it uh, mm -hmm. directly on the front lines, but all Christians are commanded yep. to be apologetically aware and prepared so that we present the gospel 
as truth that can be defended and not simply as you know something that subjectively gives meaning to our private lives mm-hmm. and unfortunately too many Christians probably just do see this instead of I was, well, I was telling a men's group that I lead I was I said what will really help you out is when you all realize what you're talking about here it's actually true it's what we would call a true myth yes Exactly. Well, we've got about five minutes left in the show here, so we got to start wrapping things up, unfortunately, because it's been a fascinating conversation, Vo. Um, it's been if, my pleasure. If someone wants to find out more about you and your work, do you have a blog, a website, anything they can go to? I have a website, which is uh, www.dulaman, that's D-O-U-L-O-M-E-N, dot tripod dot com d o u l o m e n dot tripod dot com and uh, my blog is at uh, lantern hollow press uh, if you just put in uh, www dot com into your search engine you'll be able to find it mm-hmm. and also I've got Amazon right here I can everyone know Mere Humanity can be available bought for you. Nine ninety nine Kindle, thirteen thirty five paperback. And you go to the Deeper Waters blog and click on the Amazon store and books on the podcast. You'll find Mere Humanity there. Some of every portion of a purchase will go to support Deeper Waters. So hey, you get a great book to read and you get support of ministry at the same time. So you can't really lose yeah, that. I, I like it. It's one of my favorite books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with every word in it, which is not something I can say about a lot of books. Yeah, but you're biased. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. i completely objective. I mean, the whole purpose of this book is to argue against subjectivity. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be biased, no. That's my uh, story, and I'm sticking to it. All right, we've got a little over three minutes left, so what's the final message you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? I would say that... Uh, Christianity is truth, and that we should take that seriously and think seriously about what it means to believe in a faith that is true. Uh, It means that it's not just something that uh, warms my heart, Mm -hmm. something that's reality whether I like it or not. It means that... uh, our neighbors who don't know Christ are uh, spiritually at-risk people, and they are ill-equipped to find meaning, purpose, and joy in this life, much less the next, because they're not in touch with reality. They're living in a way that cuts across the grain of the universe. And that does damage to people. So uh, if we have the truth, we need to treat it as the truth. And that means that uh, we take seriously the commandment uh, when Peter tells us to always be ready to give a reason for the defense that is within us. It means that we're not afraid uh, to ask the hard questions. Mm-hmm. It means that when we don't immediately find answers to them, uh, we 
have enough faith simply to believe that those answers are forthcoming, and there are people who can provide them, uh, you're not alone. Uh, a lot of a lot of Christians who have a hunger for intellectual integrity feel very much alone because nothing in the church or the support groups they're part of is there to support that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're not alone. You have people like Lewis and Tolkien, and uh, you have uh, people like uh, Nick and myself who are out there. And so uh, do some networking, do some studying. Christianity is a truth that will repay a lifetime of study and yet it will never run dry. Uh, Augustine had a wonderful uh, description. He said that the scriptures is a river in which a child may safely wade and an elephant may drown. Mm, I like that. The Bible is a river in which a child may safely wade but an elephant may drown. And so uh, there are tremendous riches of truth in the Word. Uh, find teachers who can help bring it alive for you and, and live it and learn to proclaim it in ways that are personally integrated into your own life. Uh, because once you've had the joy of serving the Lord in that way, you realize there's really nothing else worth doing. Well, Dr. Williams, I'd like to thank you for being my guest. I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. I would love to. It's been a great pleasure. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Bill Fortenberry on it. We're going to be talking about the faith of the founding father. So now, I'm Nick Peters, signing off. It's here, the official Rock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite Rock Radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones, and tablets. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or get a link at our website, cyiworldwide.com. Rock Radio, Christian radio that doesn't suck. You're listening to Rock Radio. Yeah.